It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Untold Story podcast. I'm Martha McCallum. It's great to have you with us again this week. And I'm very pleased to be joined today by Yaroslav Trofimov, uh, who is the author of the new book, Our Enemies Will Vanish, The Russian Invasion of Ukraine's War of Independence. The Russian Invasion, Ukraine's War of Independence. Um, and he's also a chief foreign affairs correspondent for The Wall Street Journal. Is that your correct title these days? Correct title. Yes, it is. Um, I'm very glad to have you here. I have read your work for a long time. Um, and and I, I really always think back when I think of your work and I read your reporting. And whenever I see one of your pieces pop up on the Wall Street Journal, it's always the first thing I read because I think you have a, a wonderful insight into explaining the stories of war around the world. So thank, thank you. you for that. Thank you. You know, one of the things that I, I really got so much out of in in one of your early books, The Siege of Mecca, which was about the birth of Al-Qaeda. It really helped me to understand the background and how complicated it it is in the story of the birth of Al-Qaeda and Sunni forces and Shia forces that overlap in all of those countries, right? So can you give us my first question to you is help people who look at what's happening in Ukraine understand the push and pull and the background of, of this invasion and of, of how you see it from a step back. So thank you so much and thank you for the kind words. I think when people looked at Ukraine, a lot of them made the mistake of using labels, you know, just like there were Sunnis and Shias in the Middle East, they said, well, there are Russian speakers and Ukrainian speakers, and if they are Russian speakers, they must like Russia. And that turned out to be absolutely not the case. When Russia invaded, pretty much everyone in Ukraine resisted, especially so people in the Russian-speaking cities in the East, like Kharkiv mm-hmm. uh, and, and uh, like Mykolaiv, were really the identity of Ukrainians came together and the, and the, the nationhood was forged together in this resistance against a very brutal invasion in which actually the Russian speakers were probably the biggest victims because it is their cities that were destroyed by uh, Russian bombing and Russian fire. So when, when people, and I think it's a common talking point, they say, well, you know, um, the, the lines of the country of Ukraine are, are 30 plus years old at this point. And, you know, this sentiment of it's, it's really not a country, which, of course, Putin loves to hear yeah. from people. Explain why you feel and maybe begin, if you would, with your own background, because your parents are from this area mm-hmm. and it's your background. Yeah, absolutely. I was born in Ukraine. I grew up in Ukraine as a child, uh, which makes it, it made it much harder for me to cover this war, unlike the other wars, unlike the invasion of Iraq, unlike you know the long uh, war in Afghanistan, where obviously you develop friendships and you have empathy uh, with the suffering there, but you don't have the same visceral understanding of what is going on. And uh, that made it easier in some ways as well, because I think the war in Ukraine is probably has the biggest moral clarity of any conflict we have seen since World War II. You know, Ukraine hadn't done anything to provoke Russia. Ukraine didn't invade Russia before. It didn't, you know, kill any Russians. Just it was wanted to be left alone and pursue its own path. And that was not acceptable to Putin and to the Russian government. And so I think 
a lot of people at the time, not just Putin, but I think people in the West as well, didn't really understand what Ukraine is. What is that country? Is it really a country? And that is why pretty much everyone in Washington and in Moscow and in Europe expected Kiev to fall in a matter of days. And it didn't. And the Ukrainians really showed the backbone and the strength. And initially, pretty much by themselves, uh, repelled a much larger Russian army. And I, mean, I was there, I was in Kiev throughout all of this, uh, seeing just how people came out of the houses to pick up guns and, and go to the front line and try to stop the Russian tank columns coming in. Why didn't that happen when, in 2014, when the Russians basically just walked into Crimea and, uh, you know, President Obama basically was, you know, appeared to be kind of okay with it? Well, President Obama famously said that there is nothing the U.S. can do to stop Russia from taking over Ukraine. That proved to be incorrect, uh, as this war has shown. I think in 2013, uh, there was a different understanding of Russia in Ukraine. For many people in the east of Ukraine, Russia meant higher salaries, higher level of uh, standard of living, you know, they had relatives there. And so uh, Russia seemed like an attractive idea. But after that war, after Russia had occupied parts of the Donetsk and Donbass region, and Lugansk regions in the Donbass, people saw what it means to be living in this Russian world under Russian rule. It meant no jobs, it meant gangland violence, and depopulation, because more than half of the population of these Russian-run enclaves fled to Ukraine, to Europe, and or to Russia itself. And so in, tw in 2022, people had this vivid example of how bad it is to live under Russian rule, and nobody wanted that. So Russia, Russia no longer was attractive to anyone in Ukraine. What about Crimea, though? Help me understand um, why that seemed to go so quickly, and are the people in Crimea happy to be occupied by Russia at this point? I think it's very hard to know whether people are happy or not, just because in Russia, if you say that you're not happy with the government, you end up in prison or in the psychiatric ward nowadays. Uh, there has been a big population exchange, hundreds of thousands of people from Crimea, especially the Crimean Tatars, the, the native population of Crimea, mm -hmm. had fled to Ukraine and hundreds of thousands of Russian settlers had been moved to Crimea. Uh, and obviously they support Russian rule. Uh, if you look at the uh, history of Crimea, uh, when Ukraine became independent in 1991, there was a referendum in every single one of the regions, including Crimea, where the majority of the population did vote for Ukrainian independence. Mm -hmm. So let's go to the present now for just a moment. We know that um, President Biden is meeting with leadership in Congress. They're considering mm -hmm. this larger bill, a defense bill, that would fund uh, the U.S. support in Israel of the war against Hamas and also in Ukraine and the war against Russia and also the war, some might say, at our southern border um, for maintaining the integrity of the border of sure. the United States. Uh, what would your message be to those members of Congress? Maybe you, maybe you have spoken to some of them about you know, what they need to understand mm -hmm. and what you think President Biden is going to do. What, what, what's your take on his temperature on all of this? Well, I think it's not a message to the members of Congress, but I think there are some basic facts that sometimes are lost in the discussions. One of them is if funding for Ukraine stops, it's not like the war will end. Because President Putin is very clear 
that his goals haven't changed. He has spoken about Odessa being a Russian city. The Russian, uh, the leader of the ruling party in Russia, former President Medvedev, just this week said that the existence of any Ukrainian independent state is unacceptable and Ukrainians have a choice of death or becoming Russians. These are literally the genocidal words that he said. And so uh, if funding runs out, if there are no weapons, Ukraine will just keep fighting and uh, will be losing many more of the one resource the country be replenished, which is it's young people who are fighting on the front lines. It's young men and women. And even though in Washington or in New York, it may seem that this is not America's war, after these hundreds of thousands of billions spent by the U.S. and its allies, and after all these commitments, it is clearly seen as America's war in Moscow, in China, and in much of the uh, global south. And a Russian victory in Ukraine will be seen by everyone as an American defeat. So it's interesting uh, when you talk about Medvedev and you look back through the recent history of American presidents and their stance on this issue. And Putin, who has always had the long vision, right, Mm -hmm. and and who sees the destruction of the Soviet Union as a huge humiliation for Russia and the desire to rebuild not so much the Soviet Union, it would appear, but really more sort of the imperial version of the Russian Empire Mm -hmm. um, in reclaiming all of that territory. And then when you bring up Medvedev, I I think of the conversation that was picked up on a hot mic between President Obama and President Medvedev at the time, um, where President Obama was essentially saying to the Russian president, you know, don't worry after the election, I'll have more flexibility on making sure that um, we don't continue to, you know, put these missiles that are defending all these Eastern European countries against you in Russia. Like, you know, we'll be able to. So there was really a softening that began back then on the part of the U.S. administration towards Russia. And then it it would appear that when Biden got into office, maybe they saw that as a continuation and another opportunity to to take back some of this territory. Well, I think there was a fundamental misunderstanding of Russia going back to, you know, the very beginnings of the collapse of the Soviet Union. For the Russian elites, not just Putin, but for most of the Russian elite, the collapse of the Soviet Union was a national tragedy. They went from running a superpower to running a poor country uh, that lost its imperial acquisitions of the past several centuries. And uh, that is why there is so little opposition to the war in Russia now. That is why he, you know, Putin is still able to carry on despite hundreds of thousands of casualties. And I think uh, several American administrations underestimated that imperial uh, drive of, of the Russian foreign policy, that Russia wanted to rewrite the rules of the international order and to conquer land in a very naked 19th century aggression fashion. So in terms of U.S. presidential politics, how do you think they are reading this moment? And do you agree with uh, former President Trump, who wants to be president again, that Putin wouldn't have done this um, on his watch? Well, I think we cannot know what would have happened. Uh, Obviously, uh, what happened in Afghanistan uh, had an effect on Russia, but the decision to withdraw from Afghanistan was made both by President Trump and then carried out by President Mm -hmm. Biden. And uh, the way it had been executed, uh, you know, abandoning so many Afghans who had worked with the U.S., obviously had an effect on Russia. And I think it also had an effect on Western policy because the collapse of the Afghan army and all those weapons left behind there, you know, Humvees, Bradleys, even uh, Blackhawks, 
really tempered the desire to help the Ukrainians a few months later because there was this fear that while well, the Ukrainian army will also collapse, why give them all those weapons if they will end up in Russian hands? So what do you think will happen if, and you can sense, um, certainly on the conservative side in American politics, a reluctance to continue uh, the support, and even in Europe as well, there's not um, a really passionate uh, commitment to the defense of Ukraine against Russia. So how do you see all that playing out? Well, I think actually in Europe, in some parts of Europe, uh, there is a realization that it is a direct threat to the national security of these countries, including Germany, which has really ramped up the spending in the last uh, uh, several weeks, I made commitments to ramp up spending in the last several weeks. Uh, I think so far people are not facing the consequences of the cutoff because the front lines are holding uh, at the great cost in Ukrainian lives. But if the front lines were to be broken, if the Russians were to be marching towards Kiev again, I think the conversation in the US also would change because it would really be uh, a threat to America's ability to project its power to defend its interests glo globally because everyone is watching what happens in Ukraine. The Chinese are watching. You know, people in the Middle East are watching. This is really a test of America's ability uh, to defend its allies in Europe and to defend its values. What's your read on the current president? Is he, is he going to double down and commit to that or are we going to wait until Putin marches on Kyiv? Well, I think it depends if he gets the funding, but obviously there are certain capabilities that the U.S. could have provided and the Ukrainians had asked for, such as long-range missiles that Britain and, in, and France have already provided and that have been used to great effect to neutralize the Russian Black Sea Fleet and to reopen navigation of Ukrainian commercial vessels and international commercial vessels to Ukraine's main port, Odessa. So there are some things that could still be done uh, and it could greatly affect Russia's ability to, pro to, pursue, to pursue this war. The Untold Story continues right after this. Listen to the all-new Brett Bear podcast featuring Common Ground, in-depth talks with lawmakers from opposite sides of the aisle, along with all your Brett Bear favorites like his all-star panel and much more. Available now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. There was a report recently about German doc about documents that were found in Germany or released um, through German exchanges that, that basically claim to show Putin's plan, a longer term plan to cut basically a bridge from Russia through, I believe, Belarus uh, and deeper into Europe in order to kind of create that bridge and then potentially claim more mm. of, of Poland and Eastern Europe. Um, how realistic is that plan? How authentic do you think those documents are? Were they just sort of one person's idea or are they a credible uh, strategy that you as ascribe to Russia's leadership? Well, you know, I haven't seen the documents, so I cannot judge the documents, but let's see what Putin himself is saying. Mm -hmm. You know, last year uh, he was at a, an economic forum in St. Petersburg and he said that I want to follow in the footsteps of Peter the Great and collect lands such as Narva, which is actually a city in Estonia, mm -hmm. a member of NATO and the European Union. So clearly Russia has designs on countries that used to be in its imperial sphere of influence. That includes not just the former Soviet Union, but perhaps also parts of Eastern Europe, even Finland. And should Ukraine be conquered by Russia, the Ukrainians will be drafted to fight in his wars. So Putin, by swallowing Ukraine, if he succeeds, he would have enormous resources to use to pursue. And this was, the, this was the strategy of the Russian state all along throughout the imperial days. You know, they would conquer lands and then they would use these new subjects 
to colonize new lands. You know, they were sending the Poles to fight the wars in Central Asia. So can they do that? Um, We've seen how difficult it's been for them in Ukraine, Mm -hmm. and they thought it wouldn't be that difficult. Of course, once you talk about Finland, you know, a new member of of NATO or about to be a new member of of NATO, Mm -hmm. um, that's a whole new ballgame if they start coming into NATO countries, isn't it? Well, yes. And in theory, there is the Article 5 mechanism uh, under which the U.S. and uh, other countries in NATO can be committed to defend these uh, NATO members. but I think Putin is counting on the fact that if Ukraine collapses, there will be such a crisis of confidence within the Western alliance, within NATO, uh, that the reality of Europe will change. And, and something like Russia could, be, uh, you know, could waltz in and take advantage of this mayhem. Do you think that's likely? Well, we have you seen lots said of- in theory, Article 5. <laughs> well, in theory, but it has never been tested. And again, you know, we have heard people in this country say, why go to war over Montenegro? You know, do we want to risk nuclear holocaust over Estonia? Uh, you know, until, until you're at that moment in history, it's, it's hard to be 100% sure that that commitment will be honored. And I think a lot of people in Eastern Europe are rightfully uh, afraid of that. That is why they're putting all the resources to help Ukraine fight the war. So we do not have to face this nuclear dilemma. We do not have to face this threat to NATO. So if you, um, you know, obviously you report on the things that are happening, not the things that you think will happen, but given your experience in the region, is there a way to, you know, how do you, how do you think this is going to move? Do you think ultimately Putin will fail in Ukraine and that the United States will support them to, to, to enough to help them prevail there? Or is this just another experience where Americans watch money go into an area, Afghanistan, other places where eventually we back out and we leave and uh, things sort of fall back to the you know, troublesome forces that were in place before we tried to fix it. Well, I think it's very different. And I've spent, you know, five years of my life in Afghanistan. So, uh, you know, and I was in Kabul on the day Kabul fell. So I think there could be nothing more different uh, than Afghanistan to what's happened in Ukraine. You know, it's not a government that was imposed by the U.S. It's, it's a government that was elected and it was there and they defended Kiev before much American aid came in. Not a single American soldier has to die for Ukraine. And all the fighting and dying is done by Ukrainians. And if you look at the amount of money that has been spent on military aid, yes, it's a large amount of money. But let's remember, the entire NATO alliance was created to fight and, and weaken the military might of Moscow. And now the Russian army has been decimated just by Ukraine alone, using a tiny fraction of, of the Pentagon budget. So what is the will of the Russian people in this in this fight? Because we've mm-hmm. seen the stories and some of your reporting over uh, during this war. You know, they didn't mm-hmm. even know they were going to war. They were told it was a military exercise. And that you've got their mothers mm-hmm. saying, what, what's going on? I thought my son was going off to a training thing. Now he's sucked into a war in Ukraine. Is there will behind Putin in Russia to continue losing and dying on the Russian side? What we have not seen in Russia in this war is protests. So people are dying, people are dying in huge numbers, you know, tens, maybe hundreds of thousands of Russian soldiers, most of them conscripts, have died in this war, with very little to show for. And it seems to be so far accepted by society because 
It's a very repressive regime now. You, you know, if you criticize uh, the so-called special military operation, you end up in prison. And the level of tolerance for this repression seems to be pretty high. But again, we don't know what's going to happen in Russia because it's hard but brittle. Nobody could have predicted the Prigozhin uprising last year, which really shook the system to the core. And this strain of continuing war could as well, could possibly in coming months or years, uh, create new cracks in society, in the political system, and endanger Putin. Yeah, uh, that, that's a fascinating possibility. Um, and then that would create a whole other set of circumstances um, as we look at you know, the shifts in, in world history. Before I let you go, I want to ask you, um, well, three things actually. One is, these reports, and I've always been amazed that we don't hear more about it, of, of young children being taken from Ukraine into Russia, mm -hmm. separated from their families. Why is this not something that is more on in the public consciousness? And, and where were they taken? <laughs> well, I mean, some of them were taken and adopted by Russian officials, you know, one of whom the, uh, the Russian ombudswoman for uh, you know, the rights of children is now indicted by the International Criminal Court uh, in, in The Hague. Uh, without hearing much about that, or enough about that, because you cannot report in Russia. But why don't we hear about it from Ukrainian parents? Well, because all of this is... Were whose children were taken. It's usually happening in the territories that are occupied, that have been occupied by Russia since uh, the beginning of the war. There is no access to anyone there, not to human rights groups, not to the UN, and uh, the penalties there for criticizing Russia officials is even more severe than Russia itself. People just get executed. So it is covered by this layer of secrecy. So these families, their children were taken, they live in occupied territory, and they have no way of, of speaking out. And their children, why would these Russian officials, why would they want to adopt these children? Well, you know, some of them just, you know, want to adopt children because they want to adopt children and have their own. But also, uh, there is this whole idea that we have to re-educate the Ukrainians because the Ukrainians, you know, have had their brains polluted by Western ideology. And so, it's a whole industry of taking children and making them into Russians because the one resource that Russia doesn't have is people. It's the world's largest country by territory, but it's mostly empty. And one of the goals of the invasion of Ukraine for Putin was to take Ukrainians and make them into Russians. I mean, it reminds me of Hitler's uh, Absolutely. Uh, education of the youth, and it reminds me of the Uyghurs uh, who needed to be, quote, re-educated exactly. in camps in China. Um, similar, similar MO. Uh, the title of your book, Our Enemies Will Vanish, what's the inspiration for that? Well, Our Enemies Will Vanish is a line from Ukraine's national anthem, uh, which was written in the 1860s at the time, where the idea of independent Ukraine was really a dream. Language was banned, uh, you know, literature in Ukrainian was a criminal offense. And uh, the next line, and it says, our enemies will vanish like dew at sunrise. So it's a very optimistic view of the enemies vanishing. And during this war, as I ran into people, it keeps bringing back this line in, in a very hopeful way. I mean, I have a scene in the book where I meet a woman in a shelter in Bakhmut just before it fell, uh, you know, the city in Donbass, and sort of she leaned to me and said, you know, don't worry, I don't know, she'll vanish. And I caught myself saying the second line to her, and then she started crying and hugging me. It was one very emotional moment uh, during the war. So at the same time, um, well, actually before the war, you have a novel, a love story that's coming out called No Country for Love. Mm -hmm. 
Um, what was your inspiration for writing your first novel um, as such a, you know, established and renowned foreign journalist covering wars? So the novel is. Um it's about Ukraine as well, and it's based on the life of my grandmother, um, sort of between 1930 and 1950, a period where Ukraine really was the deadliest place on earth between the Holocaust, you know, the Stalinist oppression, the death camps uh, uh, in Siberia. And uh, I started writing it just after the first Russian invasion in 2014. I was in Kabul, so I couldn't go, I had to cover uh, you know, the war in Afghanistan and Pakistan. And it was a way for me of explaining this country that nobody really knew much about. And I finished writing it just before uh, this war began. And it was really eerie because there are scenes in the, in the book of wartime Kiev from the Second World War describing how sort of they <clears throat> do the blackout and how they repaint the tops of the cathedral so that the German planes uh, wouldn't see them. And then I found myself seeing Kiev at war literally weeks after I finished writing that. Oh, wow. Great. So it's a personal story, uh, your grandmother's story. It's uh, it's well, it's a story of Ukraine Based. told told through her life, which had many twists and turns. Well, I, I look forward to that. I hope you're going to come back um, when when that book Absolutely. is released, and we'd love to talk to you about it. Um, I'd be remiss before I let you go, Yaroslav, if I didn't ask about Evan Gershkovich, and and obviously we we wait for good news there, but uh, we have not received any yet. Your colleague from the Wall Street Journal, who's in a Russian prison. And we hope very much he'll be free and with us as soon as possible. And like you said, we don't really have any news so far. And he's innocent of anything other than just doing journalism. Yaroslav, thank you very much. Yaroslav Trofimov, the book is Our Enemies Will Vanish. It's the Russian invasion of Ukraine's uh, and the war on independence. So thank you very much. It's great to have you with us. Uh, and we look forward to your future reporting on all of these situations. Thank you, Yaroslav. Thank you so much. That is The Untold Story for today. I'm Martha McCallum. We'll see you next time. You've been listening to The Untold Story with Martha McCallum. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Make sure to rate and review. For more podcasts, go to foxnewspodcast.com. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. And Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. The Fox News Rundown, a contrast of perspectives you won't hear anywhere else. Your daily dose of news twice a day. Featuring insight from top newsmakers, reporters, and Fox News contributors. Listen and subscribe now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.